This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. The Orinoco River, one of the longest in South America, has tributaries and wetlands that spread throughout Venezuela and Colombia for hundreds of thousands of square miles. Among the most biodiverse ecosystems in the world and the native range for many beautiful aquarium fish species, the stability of the Orinoco Basin and surrounding forests is under threat from a variety of natural and man-made challenges. My guest today, Ivan Mikolji, world-renowned naturalist, audiovisual artist, and author, returns to share stories from his new book, Fishes of the Orinoco in the Wild. Join us as Ivan guides us through the stories, photographs, concerns, and hopes for a better future for this treasured natural resource. We'll be right back after these messages. Moose is the German Shepherd and hasn't had any kind of health problems at all. He has been on Dynavite since he's a puppy. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. We tell anybody that has a dog, if there was something that you could do right from the beginning so that you don't have expensive veterinary bills, why would you not do it? Get the Dynavite. Dynavite for life. Get some Dynavite. How happy your dog will be. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Ivan Mikolji, naturalist, artist, and author of the new book, Fishes of the Orinoco in the Wild. Ivan, welcome back, and thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me here again. So, you know, we had a really, really great discussion in your uh, part one interview. Got to know you a little better. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to talk about your new book, but we'll kind of get a little personal to begin with uh, at the beginning. So what were some of your earliest memories of the Orinoco River? Uh, okay. Uh, I was born in Caracas and I live between Caracas and Valencia, which is which are big cities in the north of Venezuela. And I had never been south of these cities. So the first time I went to the Orinoco was back in 1986. I was in, I was around 13 years old, seventh grade, and it was a spring break. And we drove down south for around 12 hours through the whole country, through the savannas and the llanos. And we, once I got to the Orinoco and you start going up the Angostura Bridge, which is where the Angostura bitters get their name, right? When you start going up the Angostura Bridge and you see this big plain and you see the Orinoco, you feel so humble. It's so vast. It was huge. And I remember putting down my window and this, you know, tropical, warm, humid breeze comes in with the smell of river. It's so big that the whole area smells like wet soil, like damp soil. But it's one of those natural monuments that when you go there and you're told since a kid, you were a kid that is big. But once you're there, it was three times more majestic. 
it's one of those places where you're like, wow, it's even better than what they told me. So that was my first experience. It was 13 years old. Wow. So I guess, and you kind of answered that a little bit, but maybe uh, you know, now as, as a, an adult and after everything you've done, what, what does the Orinoco River mean to you? Wow. The Orinoco River to me became a life project, I guess, because everywhere I went, I would travel to document the rivers in the Andes, in the east of Venezuela. And when I was up there in the Andes, all that water that was there would drain into the Orinoco. The same when I flew into Colombia, and I was in the middle of the Colombian jungle. All that water was draining towards the Orinoco. So it was, to me, it became like a very, I finally understood that it was such a big system, and it became a life project to me. That's what it is. It's just something that I need to explore. So you gave us a little bit of a hint there with, with that great description. Tell us a little bit. I know there are a lot of folks that actually have no idea probably where it even is and, and uh, a little bit more about its geography. Can you uh, tell us, and I know some people know the Amazon River, but they don't know the Orinoco. Can you start with maybe telling us how those two are related? Of course. The Orinoco is a little bit north of the Amazon River. They're basically, let's say, in the northern or from the middle to the north of South America. It's not like the Amazon River is down in the Patagonia in Argentina. It's right under the Orinoco River. And the Orinoco River, of course, flows from Colombia in the west, and it flows northeast towards uh, through Colombia and through Venezuela, and it drains into the Caribbean Sea, almost in the Atlantic. And it's not that far away from the Amazon River. And we actually share a lot of species with the Amazon River and a lot of fish, reptiles, amphibians. But recently, we have noticed that a lot of the species that we thought we shared and were the same as in the Amazon. Now we're noticing that they're a little bit different and they are becoming new species. For example, the Matamata turtle that was thought to be the same one from the Orinoco and the Amazon, two or three months ago, it got described as a new species. And now it's Chalus orinocensis. Now it's the Matamata from the Orinoco. But we're really close by and in the, let's say, the central northern part of South America. So in terms of the Orinoco, then, um, you, you mentioned kind of a little bit of, of where it is and how it flows. Can you tell us about its size and maybe the scope of the river and the river basin? Yeah, well, the Orinoco River is the third largest river in the world by discharge volume of water. And it flows through Colombia, across um, Colombia. It goes through Venezuela from all the way from the east, from the west to the east of Venezuela. But what I think personally, what makes it so different from the Amazon, this is my personal opinion, is that the Orinoco flows through the Guiana Shield. And the Guiana Shield has all these minerals that are usually not dissolved in water that easily. And all the endemism we have in all these species in the Guiana Shield, that's what makes it very different than the Amazon River Basin. So again, just to kind of help people situate a little bit, what, what are some of the major towns in, you know, maybe areas that uh, lie along the, uh, the river or the river basin? Well, we were mentioning uh, Angostura, where the Angostura bitters come from, but there's Ciudad Bolivar, Puerto Ordaz. We got Puerto Yacucho, which is the Amazonian town. Remember, we have a state in Venezuela called the, the Amazonas State, and it goes down all the way towards Brazil in the south. 
And it's all of the jungle, you know, it's a tropical rainforest and the Orinoco flows through it. So the town of Portiacucho is in the Amazon estate. And also the, a very famous area of the Orinoco is the Atabapo area, where is where the Atabapo River flows in. And we got all those beautiful species like the Altum angelfish, which is in the aquarium hobby. Right. Okay. So with all that said, and, and you know, your uh, kind of great dedication to this water system, I've heard that there are some challenges that the Orinoco River and the basin are undergoing, both natural and man-made. Can you describe some of these and if they're having any impacts on the ecosystem or if you think they will soon? Well, we have treated our rivers as badly as everybody else. Nobody gets clean out of this, you know, Europe or North America, Central America. We've all treated our rivers badly. And here it's not an exception. But let's say specifically in the aquarium trade, there is some impact, for example, locally. For example, I've seen the extinction of altum angelfish in some rivers near Puerto Acucho, where they have been overfished for the aquarium hobby. But it's not the aquarium hobby all by itself. It's also the indigenous people that live there and other pollution, etc. But um, it's a mixture of all of it. It has its threats with mining, with it. All our, our land is filled with underground with oil, gas, sulfur, you name it, whatever mineral there is, we have it here. If you drill near the Orinoco, you'll get gas immediately. You know, there's all these rhineries and mining and, and it's always a risk. I remember, and maybe I'm, I'm uh, getting it mixed up, but were there some issues with potentially some dams as well? Well, we have one big dam called a Guri Dam. And that was made back in the, in the late 60s, I guess. In the, in the, and it's been there since the 60s. But we're not damming anything. There's no projects of damming. So okay. we're, that's probably in Brazil. Okay, gotcha. All right. Well, let's start talking about the book a little bit more now. And appreciate the background on the Orinoco and some of the, the denizens there. I really appreciate your kind of giving me a little taste of the book, uh, the, the photos and the stories and everything that you had are really breathtaking. So a major driver, kind of your philosophy on nature and everything you're trying to do. Can you maybe share your sort of overall philosophy with everybody? Uh, my philosophy is that we have to find a way to have a fair trade with nature. You know, in life, it's not it's a give and take. It's not just take, take, take. There has to be a way that we have to figure out how we can live in this planet without destroying it. That's my philosophy. So what I try to do is I try to document the things that I'm interested in, which is mostly aquatic related and things that are close to the river that are related to the rivers. And then try to entice people to love nature through photography and my videos. And because I think that if you present things in a way where people can are able to understand it, then they'll probably fall in love with it and take care of it in the future. That's definitely true. Now, uh, when did you first start thinking about putting a book together? Or was that something that you even had in mind when you were taking your videos and photographs and writing stories for magazines? And also, how did you decide to focus the book on the Orinoco? I've had a book in the making since a long time, for over 10 years. But I never felt with the authority to create the book. And it took me 15 years of exploring and photographing to feel like I had the enough, let's say, knowledge to be able to put it down and write a book. 
But the book also has been asked for by my followers. I have a lot of followers which love what I do. And they've always asked me, listen, when are you going to get out a book? We, we would like a book. When I asked them what they would want to see, they, they always said a book. So that's why people were encouraging me to make a book. And then the, um, then the Orinoco, I guess, what made you, was that just the obvious kind of choice, I guess? Well, the thing is that my following is the aquarium hobby. I was adopted by the aquarium hobby since I started. But for example, my registration of plants is much bigger than fish. Oh, okay. And, but I'm known for fish. I first wanted to make a book. I didn't know if this was going to be my only book. If I was going to do something, the first one, I wanted to be the best one. So what I thought is, how would I show everything I have, a little bit of everything of the fish? And the way was to include the whole Orinoco system. So we added over 150 species of freshwater fish, the best pictures I had taken of them in the wild, and that became the idea. So it was, it was, the idea was to make a coffee table book for people to show as a, like a piece of art. Let's say if they were walking in a gallery or in a museum and looking at fish pictures. And that's exactly what we, we tried to do. And I think we did a really good job. Oh, uh, definitely. I agree. I agree. Well, before we actually open the book and talk more about it and, and get some great stories out of you, let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussion with my guest, Ivan Mikolji, after these messages. Hi, this is Deborah Lau, president of Carnivore Research International. Did you know that people have used Carnivore for their pets successfully for a wide range of immune challenges for many decades? Here are Carnivore clients sharing their pet's testimonial. Our little dog developed this lymph problem. We took him in for surgery last year. We noticed a lump on his chest that was a lymph node that was swelled up. So the doctor checked it out and had it analyzed and everything. And uh, but the chemotherapy lasted for six months. He started developing more uh, lymph nodes that were swelled up. So I thought I'd just try carnivore. We started that and uh, he really responded. The lymph nodes started to go down, swelling did. Then I took him into the vet to have him checked out and there was no sign of any disease at all inside in the internal organs at all. Call 866-836-8735. That's 866-836-8735. Or visit carnivore.com. That's C-A-R-N-I-V-O-R-A.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Ivan Mikolji, author of the new book, Fishes of the Orinoco in the Wild. So getting back to the book, Ivan, the Orinoco is huge, as you mentioned, you know, vast, a lot of differences in species, habitats, you know, waters. Can you maybe um, give us a, a broad sweep and go into a little bit of detail with, you know, some of the different biotopes and uh, species that might be found in each of those areas? Sure. Well, one of the first spots in the book is called the Lost World. And the Lost World is down in, in the Guiana Shield, and it's where all these tepuis are, where Angel Falls and, you know, all these large waterfalls. And there's practically the photograph, underwater photography in these places is non-existent. There was none or there is none. So we went to these places and we took the pictures, and it was not only the fish, it was the underwater gardens of plants that we were documenting. 
So each area has their special fish or species. For example, the lost world has endemic plants and fish that can only live in that low pH, cold water, very sterile. The waters are so acid that there's practically, they're sterile. There's few fish. The volume of fish is very small in that area. And then you have the opposite way in the flooded savannas. If you go to the flooded savannas of the Apura state, the biomass is humongous. You got these savannas that are flooded, thousands of acres of flooded land, and there's millions of fish. For example, Microgeophagus ramirezi, which is very known in the aquarium hobby. It's a very nice cichlid, dwarf cichlid. You can see places in the flooded savanna where you don't see the ground. There's millions of these fish just covering the, the river bottom. So each place is very special and unique. And, uh, and we got another area, which is the Llanos. The Llanos has all silty water. So it was really difficult to take some pictures underwater. So each area is special and unique in itself. So because, again, there's so many different areas, did you have a pretty good idea or sort of plan on what to include? And I know some of these were from your historical footage, but, you know, what to include, where to go when you were putting the book together as a final? The curious thing is that for to finish the book, I only had to pick one picture to finish it. The rest of the pictures I had already taken. There's pictures in the book back from 2008 when I started. And there's pictures in the book taken with a video camera because I didn't have an actual camera back then, a photography camera. So the pictures have been taken. I didn't have to go anywhere. To decide which pictures to put into, I grabbed the pictures that I thought were the best. And then I gave the pictures to an art curator. And the art curator selected them with me with aesthetic let's say which one would be museum worthy which one would not and we sat down for a year and we chose the images for the book but there was only one picture i had to go take and that was of a guppy in the wild. <laughs> that's great and yeah wow i hadn't yeah i would never have thought of an art curator you know that makes so much sense so you mentioned a little bit about the video camera what are some of the challenges that you've had photographing fish in the wild versus in tanks and how has kind of technology changed since 2008 to, you know, simplify that or even make it maybe make it more challenging because you have so many <laughs> options? I have a picture of me in the beginning of the book where it shows me with a with a camera in my hand. That was my first underwater camera that I had. And it's actually one that had a disc and it was like a five centimeters DVD. <laughs> nice. And the picture there on the book was taken by... Oliver Lucanus, which is a very, very excellent photographer. And he took the picture. And when I, I told him I was going to use it in the book, he started laughing because he said, listen, that gear looks like if it was from 100 years ago, the one you're holding. But photographing in the wild is not that hard as you may think. For example, I take a lot of videos that wind up in, in Netflix or in Discovery or something. And they asked me, listen, we need, let's say, beta fighting fish, breeding. So I grab an aquarium. I tell them, listen, I, I'm not going to Siam. I am Venezuela. So they say, no, take it in, take, take it in an aquarium because it we're not talking of it in its natural habitat. It's just the context of how they breed. So I try to do it in an aquarium. I have a special aquarium where I film these things for, for the TV that are not from here. And it's 
sometimes more difficult to photograph in an aquarium than photographing in the river. Because in the, when you have an aquarium, you have all the reflection from the glass. You know, it's 10 times more difficult. But in the wild, for me, at the beginning, it was difficult because I did not have the appropriate gear when I started. And that was really, really difficult. When your gear is not the appropriate one, when you have something that is not working for you, it took me a long time to find the appropriate gear that I could use and do something good with it. So actually, photographing in the wild, it has no glass it has no reflection. The fish, usually what I do is I don't swim behind fish. And I have so much weight on me. I have put so much lead on me that I don't swim. I walk in the water. So when I'm walking in the water, I'm looking for fish that are the perfect models, which are the ones that come close to you. There are some that are curious. And those are the ones that I photograph. I don't photograph the ones that are swimming away because then you always have a shot of their tail. You never get a good shot of them. So what I do is I photograph the ones that come towards you, and that takes a long time, but once it happens, then you get really good pictures. But for me, it's much easier when I work in the wild than when I work with an aquarium. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and I guess that makes sense. You know, I, I, a little bit of fish psychology, because that was my first thought was that these fish are going to be like running away from you all the time. So your approach makes a lot of sense. And I guess you, in terms of lighting, how do you handle the lighting? I've always used, since the beginning, when I found the best case that worked for me, it was something called Aquapack. And it's like a rubber case that you put your camera in. But it was a thing that worked for me. I could work really well with it. But there's no way to hook a flash on it. So at the beginning, I thought, how am I going to do this without a flash? But I started doing, uh, taking my photographs without a flash with natural light. And all of a sudden, that became sort of my signature, where people knew my image. They could see it was my image because it didn't have a flash. It didn't have that black background with the fish lit up. And it didn't have that unnatural look where things are lit up from the bottom or from the sides. So it, it became like a trademark, and that actually helped. So I've never practically used flash. I guess only out of the, I think, 200 images in the book, there's probably six from the beginning of my career that had flesh. So I normally it's all natural lighting. And when it's not natural lighting, I usually can assist with a light, a flashlight, the outside. But in very rare occasions, it has to be something where the canopy is so dark and I, I need the picture because I don't have that fish and there's no other way of using it. So in the book, you actually see there's probably one picture taken with, with a flashlight. Yeah, the pictures are definitely, and I, I know what you mean uh, when you say your signature, they definitely have sort of a Zen kind of quality, you know, really, really serene just looking at them. So um, now I'm going to ask you to go back, maybe as back as, as far back as 2008, but can you think of some of the most memorable trips filming and exploring for the, you know, some of the images in the book and some of the stories in the book? Oh, well, um, okay. A memorable moment was I was exploring the south of the Orinoco in an area of a river, an area of a river called the Paragua River, which is in the middle of nowhere. It was with George Fear, and we got on this, this small road, and we traveled really, really far inland. And we saw a uh, morichal. And a morichal is actually like a spring filled with moriche palm trees. 
It's like a, the equivalent of an oasis, but let's say like a tropical oasis. And we saw this morichal in the middle of nowhere, and we decided to go in it because there could be many endemic species of killies. Or, and we walked through this field. It was a road where probably a car passed every week. And we walked into the field, and we went to the morichal, and we jumped. It was a very deep morichal. They had like a sort of like cliff made out of dirt. And probably four or five meters down, 15 feet down, 15, 20 feet, there was water. So I jumped in first. And once I was in that morichal, in the water, I realized, how are we going to get out? And when I was telling George to stop, he jumped in. So we were there in the middle of nowhere, just us two, stuck in this morichal. We couldn't get out. It was like being inside a, a, a big well, for example. <laughs> so we took the pictures we needed underwater in the place. And then it took us a while to figure out how we were going to get out. And I had to go underwater. He had to get on my shoulders and make holes on the side of the, of the wall with, with a stick where he could put his foot in. And after a while, when he got out, it was really difficult for him to get me out. I'm actually very thankful that he didn't leave me there because I'd still be there. <laughs> but he, he, he went and looked for a stick. And it's not as easy as you see it in the cartoons where a person throws you a stick or a rope and they pull you. It's not that easy. And it was a while. We spent a good hour trying to get or more trying to get out of that place. But every place we went, it was a very big adventure. So you have to go in a little more um, detail with uh, what kind of plants and fish did you end up seeing in there? Wow. Okay. We found in that place, it was crystal clear and there was a fish, a small little tetra, which George named the Tiger Tetra. And he put it in a bag, and there's one picture of it. It was like a, one of these tetras that are silver, but it had black on it, like black blotches on it. But inside there, there was eros, uh, severums, there's uh, ram cichlids. You, you got all these small little dwarf cichlids in these morichelles. But really, we were there, we took a few pictures, and we really started trying to get out. We were really worried. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to go back to uh, something you had mentioned earlier um, when you talked about the lost world. And you mentioned, you know, the really kind of sterile environment. Well, what were some of the types of fish that you were finding in, in those areas? Okay, there's fish in that area, Rivulus Gran Sabanai, which is the killifish from the Gran Sabana. There's a Pyrodone uh, Gran Sabanai, too. A lot of a lot of the fish from there have the Grand Savannah name, which is the translation is the Great Savannah. It's a humongous savanna filled with these tepuis, which are the flat tops that appear in the Lost World Conan Doyle uh, novel or in the Disney movies. Okay. So they carry the name of the area, most of the fish there. But the fish are not there in large quantities. They're less amount, and most of them are eating the periphyton that grows on all that algae and microorganisms that make those rocks slippery. But all the substrate there is silica sand, pink silica sand, white silica sand. You've got catalyte clay, which is white. So the whole substrate or the whole ground is pink with white with stripes on it. There's a whole area that is just jasper. The whole river is covered with orange and yellow and black jasper. So you're photographing these rivers. 
it looks like you photoshopped them. Like you made them orange and red and, and yellow and black. And it's just the geology in these areas are so special. Yeah, no, that sounds beautiful. Were there any um, any Lord Koreeds at all in there? Any Flicos or? In our last expedition to the Lost World, one of our objectives was to take the picture of the punk Plico. And the punk Plico is a Lorikarid, right? A Plico. But it has these spikes on the front of his nose that make him look like a punk. <laughs> That's <laughs> with, funny. With the spikes. It has all these spikes in the front, which are really long. So we went with a scientific description and we got to the last little indigenous place or tribe where you could leave your car and there was no more road. But from there on, it was a day and a half walk to get to where they live. Wow. And in that moment, we didn't have the time. We didn't have, if we would walk a day and a half and a day and a half back, we would miss the flights, we couldn't do it. Okay. But that is one of the species that is on my, I have to do it someday. I have to go there and, and photograph it. I want to photograph the punk Plico with one of these tepuis in the back, you know? Oh, yeah, that, that, that would be beautiful. Amazing. Definitely. Yeah. Maybe one more description. Were there areas, and you mentioned there were some areas where there were just millions of fish. Maybe could you give us a little uh, insight into sort of what you see when you're in those areas and what types of species and plants Sure. The place with the most amount of biomass are the flooded savannas in the Apure state of Venezuela. And there's literally, it's just the quantity of fish. But what happens is that the flooded savanna, it has little silt in it. There's no dirt that can be dissolved in the water. So when it rains, it's raining on sand. So the water stays crystal clear. Now, when those savannas get filled with water, and they have to drain somewhere. They drain into some of the main rivers. And when they connect with the main rivers, that's when they get filled up with fish. There's no fish. That place dries up in the, in the dry period. There's no water there. It's completely bone dry. So when the flooded savanna connects with these rivers, all these fish swim into these savannas to reproduce, to lay their eggs, etc. And it's a massive migration. And it's called a lateral migration. Because they're not migrating into the ocean. You know, it's called a lateral migration where they go to a river to another body of fresh water. So they migrate, but they migrate through these natural, can, what I call drainage canals. They're wide canals where all the fish have to pass through. They look like rivers, but they're not rivers. It's just where they connect with the flooded savanna. Now, if you go into the savanna, it's full of trachypogon grass, which also, it's almost like a foot high. And it's thousands of acres all the way. It's flat until you can see there's nothing there. It's just water. And if you go to and you go in these savannas and you won't see a fish because it's so big, it's an ocean of water. So the fish are too dispersed to see. But the place where you can see them is in the drainage canal because they all have to pass through there. So once you get into these canals that are sometimes filled with plants and this, you see 13 species of piranha. You see two or three species of stingrays. And you see the stingrays going through the plants, going through the sand. you got millions of microgeophagus remoresi. And you have Hoplius malabaricus, the wolfish. You've got huge wolfish, probably two feet long. Wow. And they're migrating these fish that you would never think migrate. They're lateral migrations. But who would think that Microgeophagus rembrezi is a migrating fish? But yeah. they do. And they swim 30 kilometers to, from in these canals to get to 
the flooded savannas. That's for a fish, which is an inch big. That's quite a lot. So well, I, now uh, I have to ask you, because I, I, you had that one, maybe more, but you had that one photo where you're kind of uh, taking pics of a, a bunch of piranha. So what's the uh, situation with the piranha? Should you be worried about them or not? Well, it depends. I'm not worried with of about them when you're in clear water. I don't get into piranha infested waters that are silty. Okay. I just don't because you get bit. Okay. Once you're in clear water, they usually don't bite you. You get bit once in a while by some species, which are opportunistic, like Cerasalmus irritans and other piranhas, which are, they don't school. They're more like solitary fish. Okay. But the ones that people are scared of, which are the black spot piranha, the red bellied piranhas, the Pygocentris cariba, which are the ones that school, they usually don't attack you. You can be there. They don't see you as food. You don't look like what something that they usually eat, right? Okay. You're swimming with them, and this is all in that in those canals, you know, that make the connection between the flooded savannas and the rivers. Right. It's all 28, 29 degrees Celsius, sometimes 30 degrees Celsius. So you're you don't need a wetsuit. You're it's like bath water, you know, and uh, the water is crystal clear. There's all these storks and birds flying over you. There's millions of birds. Uh, you got the the herons, all these big birds that are eating and feeding on these fish, right? Right. So, what about um bugs and leeches? Any major issues? Or <laughs> I, I have. To, I always no have to ask that question. <laughs> no, no leeches. No leeches. Okay. This, the only place where you get leeches when you go out exploring is when you get it into the swampy area of a river. For example, there's those when you're in a river and there's silica sand and you're in there, you don't get one. I've never gotten one. But once you start getting into the swampy area that is wet and full of leaves and all that decaying matter and it, your, your foot sinks inside the, all these decomposing things, that's where the leeches get on you. And, but in the main crystal clear part of the rivers, they're non-existent. And in the flooded savannas, they don't live because it dries up. Oh, right. they, they can't be there. So uh, leeches, no, there's a lot of insects, though. There's a lot of, let's say, not in the water, <laughs> outside, once you get out. It's pretty strange. For example, if you're in the flooded savannas and you pass a river called the Capanaparo, north of there, you get bitten by mosquitoes. But south from there, you get bitten by noceums. Mosquitoes yeah, don't exist. Right. So each river, each area, it's like you hit a natural barrier of some type, but some parts have some types of, of mosquitoes and some parts it's just gnats or horseflies. There's places where it's full of horseflies and there's nothing else. But the horseflies are the worst by far. Oh, I believe you. I, I don't like mosquitoes or noceums either, but no, yeah, I can no, imagine. Noceums are pretty bad too. <laughs> No, no, that's that's incredible. Really yeah, and I know. Uh, obviously, on a video or a picture, people don't see the uh, all the challenges, whether it's the heat or the bugs or all that. So yeah, I definitely appreciate everything that went into your uh, your photography and your videos. We're getting kind of near the end. What's kind of your hope for the Orinoco? Where do you think it's going? Is it a good future? Is it a bad future? I always want to think it's a good future. Please, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's always more of us. You know, and the river doesn't grow. So we're always affecting our natural resources more and more every day, right? But most of the Orinoco River here for the moment are Venezuela has a lot of national parks, which is really good. So we could say it could have a good future. I hope it does. No, and, you know, I hope my book doesn't become a reference for extinct species. <laughs> I hope 
you know, I, and yeah. nobody else is going to be able to do it. You imagine nobody else can do something like this in the future because it doesn't exist. Now, I, I hope it does. And I hope we find a way to, to love it more and take care of it more. Yeah, no, I think your book will definitely help with that. So do you have any uh, other big projects coming up? Yes, I have. I've gotten people with this book coming out. I've got people that have reached out to me that didn't know I had these pictures, etc. And now they're reaching out to make a whole book about, for example, the Orinoco as a whole, using the plants, the aquatic plants, the land plants, the fish, the amphibians, the reptiles, the birds. I've got pictures of all of that. So now we're thinking of doing probably one of the Orinoco as a whole and probably a series of six books of biotopes going in depth in each one, because this was a coffee table book. It actually has too much text for being a coffee table book. Right. But we want to make one which are not probably not as luxurious as this one, more, you know, just uh, with more biotope explanations in it. Kind of more of a more of a textbook type. Yeah, no, well, it, explaining more what there is as a whole, because this is just right. the fish. It has to have the minerals that are in the river, the water, because each mineral makes the water have a different color, right? Right. You know, for yeah. the diluted substrates and minerals that are in it. So we have to talk all about that, and that has to be in future books. Definitely looking forward to that. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. Again, I want to thank our guest, Ivan Vicolji, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. We've kind of done a lot of closing arguments, sort of, Ivan, but did you have any final thoughts uh, that you wanted to share about nature, or the Orinoco, or your book, or anything else? <laughs> well, I always tell people, that they have to go out and take their kids, take their family out to the closest body of water from where they live and get to know it. And that's the only way to create empathy towards water. That's what I always say. No, I want to thank Roy and Mark. Yeah, thank you. Great advice. Thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Please be sure to check out Ivan's many web links found on his Aquarium Mania guest page. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your animals healthy, and definitely check out Ivan's new book, Fishes of the Orinoco in the Wild. You won't regret it. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.